The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, and Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 to 26. You shall not murder. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has done or has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Joy. My name is Lee Eric Fesco. I'm the Director of Discipleship here at Christ Presbyterian Church, and it's great to be with you this morning. I've been instructed to tell you that now is the time for those children who are five years old through third grade to proceed to the back uh, to be dismissed for Children's Church. We'll go ahead and do that now. It's a real treat to be with you here again, and I want to thank uh, Pastor Stacy for all the, the kind words and, and just the opportunity to, to be able to, to be with you here today. Uh, again, my name is Lee Eric Fesco. I'm the Director of Discipleship at Christ Presbyterian Church, and this morning I have been charged with the task of speaking to you about murder. As you heard a moment ago, uh, we have, and thank you, Joy, for reading that, we have a, an Old Testament passage and a New Testament passage. In this, in this case, we, we gave you the law of Moses as it was originally inscribed uh, on the tablets of Sinai. And it was the commandment that simply read, you shall not murder. And whenever I've done any sort of teaching on the Ten Commandments, and, and especially get to this one, the Sixth Commandment, I like to start out by asking for a show of hands. Could I see a show of hands for those of you who have committed murder? And uh, usually, I don't know what I would do if someone actually raised their hand in that moment. No one has actually raised their hand to this point. But the reason I'm not going to ask that same question here today is because, in a sense, we've already given away the ending. I can't create any tension here because we've revealed something about the nature of this law by our reading of the New Testament. By this standard, by this standard, we've, we've all broken the sixth commandment. Our New Testament passage came from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and what we have in the Sermon on the Mount is basically a recapitulation of the law. And not just a recapitulation, but, but a clarification of it. And when it comes to the subject of murder, Jesus makes some tough remarks for us. He details for us the nature and scope of the, of the sixth commandment and says, I'm paraphrasing here, oh, you haven't committed murder, good job. But let me tell you something. If you've ever been angry with your brother, you're liable for the same judgment. You see, Jesus wanted in particular for the Pharisees and religious leaders to understand something. They had taken it upon themselves to interpret the scope of the law. And they, they pat themselves on the back 
believing they had done a good job of, of, of keeping the law. But Jesus says to them, oh, you don't know the half of it. You have no idea. You're not even close. You see, like the Pharisees, we have a tendency to read the commandments. And maybe we'll even get to the sixth commandment and read, you shall not murder and think, great, no problem. No problem. There's one I don't think I need to worry about. Have you ever made for yourself a, uh, a to-do list? You make yourself a to-do list knowing you've got to get a lot done. My wife and I took it upon ourselves to redo our kitchen last year, the whole thing, floor to ceiling. And uh, took the whole thing out, ripped it all out, started over. And, and I would work on the kitchen over the course of several weekends. So going into the weekend, I would often make myself for myself a list. Here are the things that I need to get done before we proceed on to the next thing. And sometimes that list would get rather long. And I found that what I tend to do is, with a list like this, is, is throw myself a bone every once in a while. You know, give myself something to check off, just, just for the satisfaction of checking something off and making myself think and believe that I'm, I'm getting stuff done. Eat lunch today? Check. No problem. I can handle that one. We're getting stuff done, right? And if we're being honest, I think we look at the Sixth Commandment sometimes and say, you know what, for me, that's the easiest one. Don't kill anyone today. Got it. Check. But then Jesus says, well, listen, what this commandment really means is, is don't even be angry at your brother. Don't wish him harm. Don't insult him. Don't to do any of these things and you're liable for murder. And if that's the case, then suddenly this has become the hardest commandment to keep. It's much harder than we realize. So let's be honest here. I'm going to ask the question that many of you might be thinking already, thinking quietly in your head. Jesus, how did you get there? The commandment says don't murder. It doesn't say anything about getting angry or calling names or, or any of that. So how did you get there? And this is something that we need to make sure we understand when we approach the Ten Commandments. The commandments forbid us of a certain behavior, but also on the flip side... They require of us a certain behavior. It's not just don't do this bad thing. It's, it's do this good thing instead. So in other words, the sixth commandment is telling us not only don't murder anyone, but it's also telling us we have a duty to preserve both our own life and the lives of our neighbors, to seek their flourishing. So we want to ask the same question that we posed to Jesus a moment ago. How did we get there? Is this a stretch? How did we get there? It said, don't murder, nothing about preserving life, seeking their flourishing and whatnot. Can't, can't I just check this one off my list and not have to worry about this commandment? I wish I could give you that one. But we've got to be guided by the whole counsel of God. We can't separate the law from what Jesus said about the law. But we can certainly try and understand what he said about the law based on what we read everywhere else in the scriptures. So let's try and back our way into understanding why we arrive at what seems like equating anger and murder, and then some. Let me start off by asking you this. How many of you are familiar, this one I do want you to participate in, how many of you are familiar with the internet acronym TLDR? TLDR. How many of you have heard of this one? Some of you. Some of you have heard of this. Okay, in my former job, I was in publishing, and as you might expect, you had to do a lot of reading in this industry. And you might even say it's your job to read. And in publishing, you deal with all kinds of people, most of whom 
something, have something in common with you. They, they, they all have a love and a respect for words, most of them, most of them. Every once in a while, you, you encounter someone that makes you think, why are you here? You don't like to read? Why are you here, right? Why did you choose to go into publishing? One example, I received a proposal for a book, and it was a, a pretty lengthy proposal. As you might guess, sometimes it seems like the whole book is in the proposal itself. And there was one uh, proposal in particular that I needed to make a decision on, so I solicited the opinion of one of my coworkers. Hey, would you let me know what you think about this, this, uh, this proposal? I'd like to get to the agent by the end of the week and let them know, you know, yes, on the right track, no, not on the right track. So in this particular proposal, it was aimed at a younger audience, younger than me anyway. So I solicited the help of a coworker who was a good bit younger than me, and, and I gave them nearly all week to give me some feedback. You know, so at the end of the week, I, I sent them an email asking, hey, by any chance did you get a, uh, an opportunity to look over this, this proposal? And the person replied back with only just the four letters. This comprised the entire body of their response, just the four letters, T-L-D-R. This was the first time I'd ever seen this. I didn't know what it was. So I responded back asking them to clarify what it meant. It means too long didn't read. Too long didn't read. In other words, people will often look at emails, proposals, reports, or whatever, and they'll write it off because it's just too long for them to read. And now you'll see this more and more. You see this more and more all over the internet. If you look for it, now that I've told you about it, you'll see it more and more. If there's a really long article or a report, the, the author will often include a TLDR summary at the onset of the article. Uh, we're, now we're encouraging this kind of behavior. It's crazy. And if you're intimidated by the length of this article, just go ahead to the bottom. Let me bottom line for you. Let me bottom line it for you. Here's the TLDR version. Unbelievable, right? But if we're being honest, asking for the bottom line isn't anything new. You know, save me some time. You know, what do I, what, what's the bottom line? What do I really need to know here? That's been going on for quite a while. In the 22nd chapter of Matthew, one of the so-called experts of the law tried to put Jesus to the test. He basically asked Jesus to give him the TLDR of, of the law. He asked him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? In other words, teacher, give me the one commandment. What's the one commandment that, that uh, I can follow? Tell me, tell me which is the one I really need to pay attention to and by doing so earn the most capital with God. Jesus, what do you say? And Jesus' response was basically, why don't I just give you the TLDR version? This is Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven to 40. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it, he says. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, on these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. All the law. You see what Jesus is saying here? Let me summarize everything in the law for you. Let me tell you what it all boils down to. Love God. Love God. And then he says, and a second one is like it. You see, the lawyer asked for one commandment and Jesus gave him one and one B. Here's the greatest commandment and the second is like it. In other words, the second one isn't that much different than the first. Love God, love your neighbor. L-G-L-N. Look, when you break down the Ten Commandments, do you see how they're arranged? The first four commandments center around loving God. The last six commandments center around loving your neighbor. The summary of the last six commands, which includes the six, do not murder, is love your neighbor. 
You see that? It's not just refrain from hating your neighbor. The summary of that portion of the law is love your neighbor. And to love your neighbor requires active obedience. Active. But also realize when Jesus said in the second is like us, like it, he's, he's telling us loving your neighbor isn't unlike loving your God. They're related in a sense. To love your neighbor is to love God. How so? Let me read for you James 3, 7 to 9. It says this. Now keep in mind when we read this, we're about to make the connection. We're about to make the connection here between anger and murder. Here we go. James 3, 7 to 9. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, here we go, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. With our words... Our untamed words said or thought in anger. We offer violence to our neighbor. And what this passage is telling us is that to offer violence against our neighbor is to offer violence to someone who was created in God's image. Against someone who bears the image of God. So, so this is how we make the leap from anger to murder. It's not just that anger leads to murder. Therefore, don't get angry with your neighbor because it's a slippery slope right? No, in our passage from Matthew, Jesus tells us we're liable for the same judgment. Why? Let's keep backing into it. Why, why is murder wrong? I mean, this is one we all agree on, right? Why is murder wrong? It's not just that murder is a sin against our fellow man. It's not just that murder is a sin against our fellow man. This is why Jesus connects the second half of the law with the first, and a second is like it. When we sin against our fellow man, those who are made in his image, we attack and dishonor the very image of God. So yes, murder attacks and dishonors the very image of God. So by way of murder or an angry word, if we've attacked the image of God, we've, we've committed a grave, grave crime. So to say, oh, oh, I didn't murder him. I only cast an angry word at him. You've still attacked the image of God either way. What makes life so precious is that every human being is made in God's image. Everyone. John Calvin said, our neighbor bears the image of God. To use him, abuse, or misuse him is to do violence to the person of God who images himself in every human soul. That's why Jesus connects anger and murder. And that's why the sixth commandment forbids us to, to do so, not, not just to not murder, but not to offer violence against the sacred image of God. So if that's what the sixth commandment forbids us from doing, what does the sixth commandment require us to do? I often like to say Jesus didn't show up on Good Friday, suffer the punishment for our sins, and then suddenly we've all been made right with God. No, God requires more than just sinlessness. God requires more than just sinlessness. God requires sinlessness and righteousness. Jesus died for our sins, but he also lived for our righteousness. It wasn't enough for God that we just not sin. That wasn't enough. But it requires active good as well. Jesus was passively obedient in his work of suffering but he was also actively obedient in that he was good, actively good, actively loving. 
He wasn't just sinless. He was actively righteous. This is why we not only ask what the commandment forbids us to do, but we also ask what it requires of us. One of my kids, he told me next summer he wants to get a job at our local grocery store. And, uh, and you know, when you live with your kids, you see how they behave day in and day out. You see them at their very best and you see them at their very worst. So uh, when we ask them to pitch in around the house, yes, they'll be good kids and they always agree to help out. But oftentimes there's an undertone that doesn't say it explicitly, but ever so subtly, they say what amounts to, what's the least I got to do to get credit for doing this? You know, I get it. I was once their age. But when you talk about working at a grocery store or, you know, a, a job as a waiter or a waitress, something, I was telling my son, you know, you can do that. But I want you to understand something. If you want to do well, if you want to do a good job and have your boss reward you for doing a good job, you, you've got to hustle. You've got to hustle. You've got to be a go-getter. If your boss asks you to go get a rack of shopping carts, go get two. Whatever's expected, you do do that and then some. Don't let the words, well, that's, that's not what I was hired to do. That's not, that's not in my job description. Don't let those words ever come out of your mouth. You got to go above and beyond in a job like that. Put that in your head now and I promise you, I promise you it will be a rewarding experience for you. But you can't go in with a mindset that says, what's, what's the least I got to do to get credit for this? You won't last long if you do. And a bit ago, we, we spoke about the passage from Matthew whereby a lawyer asked Jesus what, what the greatest commandment was. And he responded by saying, in short, love God, love your neighbor. There's a very similar exchange in the book of Luke where a lawyer asked Jesus again, trying to test him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answered him by asking him to summarize the law. And he correctly res responds in short, you know, love God, love your neighbor. And Jesus told him, yep, you're right. Just do that. That's all you got to do. Love God, love your neighbor. That's all you got to do. But in this exchange, the lawyer then responded back with, okay, but who is my neighbor? Who, who do I have to show this, this love to? Whom, who am I, what's the least I got to do here? What's the least I got to do to get credit for doing this? You see, he wasn't wanting Jesus to, to put up a definition on who his neighbor was because the so-called teachers of the day made a definition of their own. Their answer, who's my neighbor? My fellow Jew. My fellow Jew, that's, that's who my neighbor is. Everyone else I don't have to love. In fact, everyone else I can hate if I want to. But my neighbor, my fellow Jew, that's the least I got to do. That's all I want to do. I'm free to hate anybody else. So Jesus, who is it exactly? Who is my neighbor? You see how this pulls us back to the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment tells us not to murder, but we already discussed the scope of that. We're already, we've already answered what that means. It forbids me from doing any violence in thought, word, or deed against my neighbor. And so here's the next logical question. Who is my neighbor? With this, Jesus responds with a parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I would guess that most of you know this parable, but at least the basic gist of it, but for those of you who are unfamiliar with it, let me, let me give you the highlights. Jesus tells us about a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and on his way, he was mugged. They stripped him, they beat him, and, and left him for dead. So there he was, cast off to the side of the road, basically waiting to die. Who would help him? Who would come to his aid? Along comes a priest. This is someone who would have been a descendant of Aaron, brother of Moses. Aaron, in his line, worked in the temple. So a priest 
was passing by. Surely he would help. The priest walks by, giving him a nice wide berth, crossing to the other side of the road. No telling what he did. I don't think I need to help him out. The priest walks by. Soon thereafter, another one came by. This one, a Levite. A Levite isn't a descendant of Aaron, but the Levites, they also had temple duties as well. They would have been assistants to the priests. Perhaps he would help the injured man on the side of the road. No? He too, he passed by, moving to the other side of the road. I've got no time for that. I've got to get to the temple. I've got temple work to do. So who came next? It would be a Samaritan. Now, who were the Samaritans? Well, as you might guess, the Samaritans were from Samaria in Israel in their early years. They were one kingdom under David, but it was under the reign of David's grandson, Rehoboam, where the kingdom divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The temple was in the southern kingdom in Jerusalem. However, the northern kingdom, whose capital was Samaria, right, was eventually destroyed by the Assyrians. Came in, attacked them, sacked them. And in the process, a lot of different people moved in and a lot of Israelites were moved out. And so in terms of, of identity, it all got very mixed up, right? So the, so the southern kingdom looked down with great disdain at those in the north. They looked at the Samaritans and considered them dirty people. They looked at them as, as rivals, as enemies. Someone to be looked down upon, to be spat upon. So here we have a Jew, a person from the southern kingdom, left for dead on the side of the road. And along comes a Samaritan. Would the Samaritan help? Would someone who this injured man would have considered a dirty enemy, would he come to his aid? We're told the Samaritan had compassion on him. Not only did he not leave him for dead, not only did he not murder him, right? In effect, he asked what the sixth commandment required of him. And so, not only did he not let him die, but, but he bound up his wounds. He hoisted him up and placed him on his own animal and took him to an inn and took care of him. The text tells us he gave his own money. He gave him his own wealth. He gave money to the innkeeper and said, please take care of him. I'll be back. And when I come back, I'll, I'll pay you for whatever else is owed. I take it upon myself. And then as Jesus wrapped up the parable, he asked the lawyer, now tell me, which of these threes do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer answered him, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. In other words, who is your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? It's not just the people who look like you and act like you. It's, it's the ones you might even consider to be your dirty enemy. God is telling us, love that person. Help that person flourish. Love that person to life. The one that hates you, give of yourself to that one. What this parable tells us is that there is more to keeping the sixth commandment than not mugging people. There's more to keep in the sixth commandment than re refraining from murdering anyone. It means loving our neighbor. It means showing kindness to strangers and mercy to our enemies. The Heidelberg Catechism asks this question in reference to the sixth commandment. It says, is it enough then if we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? The answer, no. 
For when God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, he requires us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness toward him, to prevent injury to him as much as we can, and also to do good to our enemies. But you see, here's the real secret to the parable of the Good good Samaritan. Here's the real secret. We'll often read that parable and think to ourselves that Jesus is telling us, okay, now go be like the Good Samaritan. And yes, that, that is what the parable is telling us. But please realize this. Ask yourself this. Who am I in this parable? Who are you in this parable? Are you the Good Samaritan? No, friend. You are the one who is cast to the side of the road. You are the one who is cast to the side of the road and left for dead. You are the one who is mugged by sin, beaten and bloodied by sin's curse. And what hope did you have? Who, who would come to your aid? Ephesians 2 answers this for us. Paul tells us we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. We were by nature children of wrath, it says, like the rest of mankind. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he, had, he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Romans 5, 8 echoes the very same thing. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were yet enemies of God, while we showed contempt for God, while, while we looked at God as a dirty enemy, Christ died for us. He had compassion on us. He bound up our wounds. He brought us in. He sacrificed of his own wealth and told us one day he would return having already settled our account. This is what Christ has done for you. And if you believe in his saving power and believe that he has applied his salvation to you by way of his body and blood, then you are right now, right now, you're undergoing a process where your image is being conformed more and more to his holy image. He is making us like himself. And he's invited us, he invited us into this process by telling us, go and do likewise. Go and do what I have done for you. I have fulfilled this law and all that is required of it, this sixth commandment on your behalf. Now go live as someone who, who knows it, who believes it, and reflects his image back to me. Reflects my own image back to me. You see, Jesus didn't step back, see us in our dead state, and say, I didn't do it. <laughs> I'm not responsible for that. They did it themselves. I didn't murder them. It's not my job. I didn't do that. He didn't say that. No, he saw us in our state. He took responsibility for us. He loved us back to life. And he tells us, those of you who have been beneficiaries of this, go and do likewise. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, what your law reveals to us is that there is more required of us than we realize. The law reveals to us our need for a Savior, and thanks be to Jesus Christ, He is our Savior. He fulfilled the law's demands on our behalf and gives us the power through Your Holy Spirit to walk in the footsteps of Christ. Help us to do this daily, dying to self, sacrificing ourselves for the sake of our brothers, sisters, and neighbors. Help us to see our neighbors for the image bearers that they are and help us love our neighbors as Christ loved us. 
And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Larry. This table um, <clears throat> is set by one who, as we say, if you're unfamiliar or maybe you've heard this table before, we talk about the body and blood of Jesus. This is a table set by someone who is willingly letting themselves be murdered in body, in reality, body and blood, in history, space and time. There was a specific sentence delivered over this innocent one and he was murdered willingly going because he had to get to the depths of where murder lies in us so that your blood wouldn't have to be shed and nor anyone else's. He gives his for you. And so that's what this table is about. If in any way that you think this table is a place where you can come because you've earned it, and just as Lyric said a number of times, uh, this isn't a table saying, I haven't done it, I'm doing okay. That's not why, whether at any point you think that, that's not why we come. We come to this table because the only one that can get to our hearts, the only one who has never had murder in their hearts, the only one who could look at us with any contempt and yet did not, is Jesus, so he could wash our hearts clean, place where murder lies. And you get to come to this table and taste and see that God is good in giving his son for you. So that's why we come to this table and taste this and eat this and drink this, because this is our identity in him. It was on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Take, eat, all of you do so in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he poured out the wine and he said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. My blood that is of the new covenant. It means because of his willingness to go to the cross and die, you get to taste your new relationship with God because of that. You have a new relationship. That's what new covenant means in his blood. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And if he has come once and he has fulfilled that promise true, he will come again. Let's stand together. Now, we're gonna read together from the Heidelberg Catechism as we have been Regarding the commandments, what is, let's go back one slide, what is God's will for you in the sixth commandment? I am not to belittle, hate, insult, or kill my neighbor, not by my thoughts, my words, my look, or gesture, and certainly not by actual deeds. And I am not to be a party to this in others. Rather, I am to put away all desire for revenge. Please be seated. Our process this morning is just to encourage you. In a moment, you'll have a silent moment to go before the Lord and prepare your heart to come to this table. 
will be dismissed into the center aisle. Uh, you can come and, and there'll be two stations on either side. Uh, you'll be uh, handed with a, a small brief benediction, the, the, uh, a cup that's uh, pre-packaged, and uh, you can wait for a moment, uh, but we'd encourage you to go ahead and take that and go back to the outside aisle as you are dismissed and then uh, and, uh, and go back outside to your rows, if you will. Now the music will be playing. Feel free to sing and uh, enjoy uh, the music is playing and, and, uh, and this feast that is a celebration of Jesus taking us in who were his, not, he didn't just take in his first century enemies, but his 21st century enemies uh, to be his loving uh, sons and daughters at this table. Well, let's take a moment of quiet just to prepare our hearts to come to this table and taste that the Lord is good. Let's bow our heads.